Hello, and welcome to The X Degree, a podcast where we delve deep into the abyss of the internet to find strange, convoluted, and seemingly impossible connections between two random things. My name is Eric Stafford. Today, we will be looking into a connection between American craft breweries, a refuge for flannel, beard balm, and mesh-backed hats, and the World's Fair, a celebration of all the cool stuff people all over the world can do and make. Also, getting the first F-bomb out of the way kind of early here, there's also another one in later. I, I, I feel like I should just let you guys know. There's an old joke I know from Monty Python. What do American beer and having sex in a canoe have in common? It's fucking pretty close to water. And honestly, that's true of some some American beers that you share with a buddy, that you make as cold as mountains, or you don't really know how to spell light correctly. But when most of us beer-touting hipsters think of beer now, we think of hops that make your eyes water, barrel-aged porters that you could light on fire, fruit-filled, essence-filled IPAs that you get served in tulips rather than pints. And I love all that. Beer, in essence, is just water, hops, barley and yeast and different combinations and origins with some extra little something thrown in sometimes. What we consider a craft brewery is typically understood to be a small independent brewery or regional chain. Today, most are in industrial parks or more commercial spaces with their brewery equipment on proud display. They're usually family owned with a local fan base and community outreach. Many are proud that they aren't owned by the big corporations like Anheuser-Busch, Miller Coors, or Paps. There's even an app called Untap that I use that literally you go around to a craft breweries. The oldest still operating craft brewery in the U.S. and largest in the space is Jungling, based out of Pottsville, Pennsylvania. It was founded in 1829. Not far behind Jungling is Anchor Brewing, based in San Francisco, which to some is the keystone of the revitalization of the American craft brewery movement when it was rescued from foreclosure in 1965. Behind Yunling are companies like Sierra Nevada, based in Chico, California, New Belgium, based in Fort Collins, Colorado, and the Boston Beer Company, most known for their production of Samuel Adams beer. Founded in 1984, the Boston Beer Company is now the fourth largest brewery in the U.S., making Samuel Adams beers, Angry Orchard Ciders, Twisted Teas, and Truly Seltzers. They are an independent company founded by Jim Coke, who was prominent in the old Sam Adams commercials that I remember as a kid. Cook took the name of Samuel Adams for his beer because of the namesake's significance in the American Revolution in Boston, as well as his affiliation of, as a brewer in colonial Boston. But today we know most about Samuel Adams as being a member of the Sons of Liberty, a group of revolutionaries in the New England colonies who performed active civil disobedience and protests against the oppressive British rule of the colonies. You know, writing essays about free liberty and self-government, Enlightenment ideals of humanity and moving away from monarchy, public demonstrations against the crown, usually wrapped and danced to by Lin-Manuel Miranda. But I I may piss some people off here. They're kind of terrorists. They knowingly committed acts of violence against the government of the area they were living in. They spread propaganda about the British rule, committed acts of violence and political defiance to get people on their side, and they started a civil war. I, that I even for me that ruins a little bit of what I, I was taught in school, but I, I think that's what it was. And the only reason we are a little uncomfortable when I say this and other people say it's because we 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 won the revolution. We're America, and the American colonies seceded from the British rule, and because of that, we as Americans learn about what our founders did in a vastly different light 
than if we didn't win. All right, let's get out of this grave I've dug for myself. The Sons of Liberty ran in circulated now exaggerated news stories, why can I not stop this, and participated in now historical moments like the Boston Tea Party. Sam Adams was actually one of the planners of the Boston Tea Party, which, when you think about it, it's kind of a cute name for what they did. The reasons the Sons of Liberty did this was actually, an, it was a competition war. We were always taught that the Boston Tea Party was a bunch of revolutionaries dressed up as Native Americans. They snuck onto some British boats, poured all the sneaky, stewardy British tea into the harbor, and then danced around the night away. But Americans loved tea back then. It was an insane commodity in a massive market. And like every massive market, a dark side of the market usually opens, typically in a cost-saving manner that will sometimes skirt around authorities regulating the sale and taxation of that product. In the American colonies, there was a huge black market for Dutch tea that went around the East India Trading Company, the main distributor of British tea into the colonies. As black market Dutch tea was making its way into the American colonies, less and less tea was being bought through the East India Trading Company, and this led to a giant surplus of tea. So the British Parliament passed the Tea Act of 1773, which lowered the price of British East India Company tea below the price of the smuggled Dutch tea. And one thing led to another, and then we have the Sons of Liberty throwing the East Indian Company tea into the Boston Harbor. But let's move away from the landmine I've been stepping on in American history into the British East India Company, a joint stock company founded under a charter of the British Parliament in 1600. It was originally founded to facilitate trade between the British Empire and its trading connections in Southeast Asia and all around the Indian Ocean. By the mid-1700s, close to half of the world's international trade was facilitated under the East India Company. The company traded mostly basic commodities like cotton, silk, dyes, sugar, spices, tea, and opium. And here's where we continue to keep stepping on some toes. Because as the company grew, it took on more of a paramilitary role for the British Empire, securing and defending its trade routes and sometimes procuring sales and defending the, those routes with a little bit of armed conflict. In the early 19th century, the Qing Dynasty in China began to debate the necessity and safety of the opium trade into China from outside companies, specifically the Brit British East India Company, which was selling roughly 1,400 tons of opium per year into China in 1838. The government began to crack down on opium traders within China, and finally in 1839, the government wrote a letter to Queen Victoria to cease the opium trade into China because of the detriment it was causing to the government and to the Chinese population. The Chinese military then confiscated and destroyed the British opium and declared a blockade, suspending all British trade into China. What followed was the First Opium War that ended with the Qing Dynasty surrendering authority of several naval ports to the British government, including the entire island of Hong Kong. Okay, let's get away from international conflicts and onto something way less controversial, opium. Opium is the dried latex that is harvested from the opium poppy seed capsule. So, good news for all of you people with a latex allergy out there, you can't get addicted to opium. You, you die first. About 12% of this latex is the chemical compound morphine, which can be derived further into many different opioids, such as codeine, fentanyl, and heroin. Today, heroin is recognized as one of the most dangerous and addictive controlled substances used for recreational purpose. And listen, 
There's a big discussion about drug criminalization and declassification. But listen, I've done so much look into this, more than I needed to know. Heroin is so fucked up. The chemical base of heroin, diamorphine, was first synthesized in 1874 by C.R. Adler Wright, a British chemist, but nothing really came of the invention until Felix Hoffman recreated the compound while working at Bayer Pharmaceutical. In 1895, Bayer marketed a close compound cousin, dicetylmorphine, under the name heroin, as a less addictive substitute to morphine in pain management and cough suppression. And here we laugh at all those silly old-timey scientists and doctors selling and using drugs without knowing what they were doing, because nothing we take today will ever be looked like that in a hundred years. Jeez, uh, I'm sorry. This is a dark one. I don't know. Listen, I we're going to some whimsical places soon. I'm very sorry. Wow. So the Bear Corporation was founded in 1863 as a dye stuffs factory and began to experiment in its chemical departments. And in 1899, they trademarked their first product, acetyl salicylic acid, also known as aspirin. This was the first synthetic derivation of salicylic acid that was used as a folk remedy in many parts of the world, reaching back to ancient Sumerian and Egyptian societies where healers used the bark of the willow tree to reduce fevers. All right. Now it's time for that big mood shift as we move away from drugs and wars and we talk about some willow trees. Nice, big, waving in the wind willows with their drooping branches. I'm picturing one swaying, hanging over a small pond with some cute ducks or some not that mean swans. Maybe there's a little frog croak. No more science, no more drugs. Just a nice little afternoon at the pond with a big weeping willow. All right, we're all relaxed. Ready to go. Perfect. Now look down to your left. Look, there's a copy of J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets sitting on the bench next to you. And here we go into the magical fantasy world with the Whomping Willow. Books are the only drugs you need, kids. If you need a quick refresher, if it's what the Whomping Willow is, in the Chamber of Secrets, Harry and Ron are attempting to get to Hogwarts late because they missed the Hogwarts Express and they take the Weasley's flying family car, the Ford Angela. As they approach Hogwarts, they accidentally crash their car into a tall willow tree because they're, you know, 12. And suddenly the willow begins to move its limbs and knotted branches and smash the car to pieces, and Harry and Ron escape, not before Ron breaks his wand, in a, in the, at least in the movie, a very... I hope it's not foreshadowing to Ron's life, seeing his wand droop a little bit, but, you know. In later books, the secret passage from Hogwarts to the Shrieking Shack in Hogsmeade is actually underneath the Whomping Willow. And saying all of that out loud, all I can imagine is someone who has never heard of Harry Potter thinking I came up with a lot of these words. And sure, I guess I apologize for that. But let's go back to the car that they were driving, the Ford Angela, which was a teal convertible in the book and subsequent film. And I don't really know that much about like car manufacturing details but apparently in the same engineering line that ford uk produced from the 1930s to the 1960s were also the ford popular and the ford prefect ford prefect at me looks like the modern london cab the black one but now i've probably pissed off some car nuts too so perfect great let's you know let's keep going let's go back to opium if we want 
But it was manufactured and sold from 1938 until 1961, and was the body of a lot of hot rod mod cars. But hopefully, there are some other nerds out here who can guess where I'm going to go, and we're going with the Ford Prefect to the character named Ford Prefect. In Douglas Adams' book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the main character, Arthur Dent, wakes up one morning to find his house being actively demolished to make way for a new bypass when his friend arrives to help him collect his things, including a towel, pound some beer, some salty snacks, and follow him as he catches a ride onto a Vogon demolition ship that have surrounded Earth to demolish it to make way for a new hyperspace byway. And the friend's name is Ford Prefect. Now, there's kind of some confusion of why Douglas Adams gave this character that name. In reality, there's a ton of debate from Adams to himself about what the true story of Hitchhiker's Guide actually is. Between the several radio iterations, the book, the television show, and the subsequent film. But at least for Ford's name, some of the reasons, you know, include being it's, quote, nicely inconspicuous, that he misidentified the dominant life form on Earth to be a car, that he was nearly run over by a Ford prefect, and that he was emulating famous human names like Henry Ford, John Ford, and other famous Fords. Which, in the world of Douglas Adams, all of them kind of make sense. I could go into Ford's real name, but that would just be really too weird. But this is also coming from a series that has a chronically depressed AI robot named Marvin, an improbability drive, a restaurant permanently stationed at the end of the universe, and a man who won an award for designing Norway. I, I said we'd move away from drugs, but I guess we're onto some very different drugs. But in this world, it becomes apparent that Earth was actually a sophisticated supercomputer designed to come up with the ultimate question to life, the universe, and everything. And the reason the question needed to be found is because everyone already had the answer to life, the universe, and everything. 42. I'm so sorry to all of my non-sci-fi fantasy friends out there who are listening to this. I have no excuses. I am one. It's my podcast. Get used to it. And now we get into the fun world of numerology. Hey, you know, again, wars and opium. Just remember where we went. You can go back to the Anne Frank house if you want. The humans have a fascinating history with numbers and finding secret meanings behind them. Pythagoras, the ancient Greek philosopher, literally had a cult of numerology. It had to deal with ideal numbers used in mathematics and the universe, loving whole integers so much that he named the square root of two the unutterable. Whole numbers are seen all over the world today to have significant meaning. One being something whole, our base 10 system, seven days of creation, and the lucky number seven, trinity and divinity in christianity i talked about the biblical significance of 40 a few episodes ago and 42 is thrown everywhere into nerd culture the dark tower series by stephen king is completely centered on the numbers 19 and 99 there's something about hidden meaning and things that really gets people going but we also have some unlucky and evil numbers one of the most well-known being 13 but really there's some good 13s it's the age of the Jewish bar mitzvah, 13 nights on the round table, a baker's dozen, it's a Fibonacci number, it's a prime integer, those two are for me, just leave me alone. But regardless, in many cultures, 13 is a very, very unlucky number. The end of the world is predicted after the 13th Baktun in the Mayan calendar. Judas was the 13th person to sit at the Last Supper. 
Years with 13 full moons are seen as unlucky. And there was a myth that the 13th law of Humurabi's Code was omitted. It was later disproved. Friday the 13th is just a horrible day of unluck. And these deep-seated feelings to the significance of numbers has led the Otis Company, the world's largest constructor of elevators, omit a button for the 13th floor on 85% of the elevators that they manufacture. The Otis Elevator Company was named for the founder of the modern safety features in elevators, Elijah Otis. I, this, I don't know why, but for some reason, every time I hear his name, where he's talked about, it's about him inventing the elevator. It's used in a lot of TV shows. I don't know why. It's weird. But he actually was the inventor of the automatic safety brakes on an elevator. And in a fantastic move of invention and engineering marvels we don't have anymore, Otis demonstrated his design at the 1853 World's Fair in New York, an event I really wish I was there to be around. In this demonstration, Otis himself was standing alone on a platform, held up only by a rope. He then had an axeman, who I really hope was hooded, cut the rope in front of the crowd. The platform fell a few inches before his safety brakes stopped its fall. I genuinely hope Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos the best of luck in all of their future space endeavors. And now we finally arrive at the World's Fair. And honestly, I thought we were just going to talk about the cool old look at the lives of the future exhibits with space age technology in the late 1800s, gizmos and ornate architecture and promotional banners. But the World's Fair is still happening today. Also known as the World Expo or the Specialized Expo outside of the US, the Expo 2020 was slated to be held in the United Arab Emirates, but was delayed because of COVID-19, and the next specialized expo focusing on creative industries and digital convergence was planned to be held in Buenos Aires, Argentina. The World's Fair we all think of was originally organized in Prague in 1791. King Leopold II of Bohemia, the region Prague was in at the time, organized it around his coronation and was meant to showcase the manufacturing and specialization of the Czech lands. The first French expo, called the French Industrial Exposition, was held in 1844, and soon after, expos began popping up all over Europe. The Great Exhibition of the World Industry of All Nations was held in London in 1851, and was held at the Crystal Palace in Hyde Park, and is considered by some to be the precedent of the World's Fair and Expos that we all think of today. These often, and still do, correlate to huge monumental structures for expos, like the Eiffel Tower for the 1889 Paris Expo, the Space Needle in Seattle for the 1962 World's Fair, and the Palace of Fine Arts for the 1915 San Francisco's World Fair. The Automium structure for the 1858 Brussels Expo is another one, and the plethora of structures at Flushing Meadows Park in Queens for the 1964 New York World's Fair. Beginning at the 1939-1940 New York World's Fair, a shift occurred away from showcasing the newest and brightest feature technologies and shifted to more of a cultural and social program showcase event. And now most expos are used by host countries to improve and promote their national image and seek foreign investment and promote investment opportunities throughout the country. Well, there it is. I think now the largest connection jump I've ever done and one that's going to piss a lot of people off, but that's one way you can connect American craft beer to the world's there. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to the NPR podcast Throughline and Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history, Douglas Adams and JK Rowling for 
unknowingly sort of connecting their sci-fi and fantasy worlds for me. The 99% Invisible City by Roman Mars and Kurt Kolstad, and to the marvel of the world that would take center stage at any 1800s world fair, Wikipedia. If you want to see some photos of Samuel Adams and his namesake beer, old bear heroin ads, the Ford Prefect, and Elijah Otis, we're on Instagram at ToTheXDegree. If you want to send ideas for new connections, you can DM me there or send me an email at xdegreepod at gmail.com. Also, if you guys want, I'd love if you told a person or two about that. Again, I make no money. It's just kind of for my ego. Attention, I wish I went down but didn't. After the Opium Wars in the 1840s, the island of Hong Kong fell under British rule and was extended after the British obtained a 99-year lease on the island in 1898. The island was later captured by the Japanese Empire in 1941, but was reinstated to British rule after the Japanese surrender in 1945. It was only absolved of British rule in 1997, the end of the 99-year lease, and control was given back to the Chinese government. It is now designated as a special administrative region, but if you've been paying attention the past years, not so much. It just goes to show the long-lasting effects of really disgusting colonialism. Stay safe out there.